Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we are willingly making the decision to avail ourselves of SST 213, the Program Annihilator 2 compilation. There are some tracks we've been through before and a bit of a preview for some tracks that we're going to cover in future episodes. So interesting comp to get into. But Brent, the Coupe de Gracie for this episode, I would say, is our special guest. Yeah, we've got Jim Ruland on the show. Amazing to have Jim on the show. He's got a new book out, Corporate Rock Sucks, which obviously we are thoroughly enjoying. It's basically, you know, the story of SST Records and all the bands. It's great. And to its credit, it doesn't give short shrift to, you know, the second half of SST, which is fantastic. Yeah, which is fantastic. And uh, not only is it a great interview, I have added this book to my sucks section in my library, Brent. Do you know, <laughs> it goes right next to John Fine's Your Band Sucks. So I've got Corporate Rock Sucks and Your Band Sucks in my sucks section on my, my shelf. I'm glad you clarified what the sucks section is. Yeah, yeah. It's, for, it's for books that have sucks in the title. There okay. you go. All right, man. Before we get into it, though, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay, just a couple quick ones for me this week, Ryan. I watched this rock doc that I've been wanting to see for a while. Now, I love the band The Waco Brothers. I have every single one of their albums, and I still throw them on fairly regularly. I have some of John Langford's solo albums, some of his various side projects. I have a mm. few of Sally Tim's solo albums, even. But the Mekons are a band who have always eluded me for some reason. Now, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, the Mekons are almost a collective, but, you know, they are a band. Formed in Leeds, England in 1977. Started out actually very closely associated with Gang of Four, who they went to, you know, went to high school with. Oh, yep. uh, Shared a practice space with them, played a lot with the band. Uh, They started out as more of a post-punk band, but by the mid 80s really started to incorporate more you know roots into their punk Mm. cert you know they've certainly always maintained that punk rock ethos though their current lineup has been in place since the mid 80s the members are kind of scattered all over the world by this point uh, but they still come together to record and tour many of them are in other bands or they're you know highly accomplished visual visual artists as well the whole thing is laid out perfectly in the 2014 documentary Revenge of the Mekons, directed and produced by Joe Angio. Uh, the documentary has interviews with Hugo Burnham and Andy Gill of Gang of Four. About those early days, all of the band members, and there have been lots of them, past and present, I'm pretty sure all participated in it. Lots of great archival footage and current footage of a tour they were on when this documentary was made. It kind of does profiles on each member, like Lou Edmonds, for example, you know, has been in the band since the mid-80s. He's also in Public Image Limited. He was in The Damned. So, you know, Lou's cool as shit, obviously. Yeah. He spends much of the time when he's not on the road working with musicians in Western Siberia and Central Asia, helping them build recording studios so they can properly document, you know, like regional music. My, my favorite quote in the documentary is by Ed Roche of Touch and Go Records, who says, Every critic loves the Mekons. Unfortunately, they get free records. So I've been binging two of their highly regarded albums, 1985's Fear and Whiskey and 89's Rock and Roll, which are both exceptionally good. 
I mean, like they've released 20 plus studio albums. So there's a lot there, you know, in the documentary, the band says there's no real leader in the band, but they all acknowledge the band would have probably fallen apart years ago were it not for John Langford. So, you know, I've also been listening to a lot of his bands that came, came a bit later, like the Waco brothers, for example, who have also released well over 10 studio albums and there's not a dud in the bunch. So where, where are you at with the Mekons, Ryan? Very, uh, minor awareness via gang of four, I would say, rather than via the Waco brothers. Yeah. So I've, I've never really done a deep dive eluded me as well. I would say I wasn't even aware of this documentary. So I'm, it's definitely going on the to-do list. Where did you, where'd you grab it? Did you get it on disc or is it on a service? Uh, I have found a DVD of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, quick podcast shout out, Ryan, Mario Lally of dark side, dead issue across the river, sort of quartet, Fatso Jetson, many, many more. Yeah. Uh, was recently on the vinyl guide. It's an excellent interview. It got me so pumped to get into some of that stuff. We're still at least a hundred episodes away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he talks about all kinds of stuff, uh, but some unreleased across the river uh, material reissues. He's got almost all of the master tapes for, you know, a lot of this stuff, Fatso Jetson and Sorta Quartet. He goes into detail about a live across the river recording called live at the County line that was supposed to come out on SST, but didn't. Mm. This was a generator party show, uh, with Firehose, Lawndale, Sacron Trust, Equidemius, and across the river. And Chuck Dukowski commissioned a recording of the entire entire show oh man yeah it, all to 16 track I think he says recorded by Phil Newman and when Phil passed away Dave Markey got all of his tapes and gave this one to Mario so apparently the idea SST had was they were going to release an, this live at the county line album with a couple songs from each of those bands that mm. I just mentioned yeah yeah dude I want all of those, but especially the live Firehose set. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe the Across the River stuff will be coming out at least because, you know, Mario mentions that they've actually had those tapes baked and it's already been transferred to, to like, digital. Yeah, that sounds like it's en route. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Check that interview out. It's a good one. That's all I have this week, though, Ryan. What do you have? I've got a few to get through. I'll try and be efficient here because I want to get to Jim's interview. Some of my spiels are... Ruland slash San Diego themed though. So there's a bit of a tie-in. Okay. And my spiels are rock docs, recommends, and book reports. Mm. Okay. I like it already. <laughs> this is going to be a real diversion from my usual spiels. Okay. <laughs> it's rock docs, recommends, and book reports. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. First rock doc. This is pop. This is a new docu-series. Well, not new, I suppose. It's just new on a service I get. But it's put out by Banger Films, the same guys who uh, brought us all of the Rush, Maiden, ZZ Top, Hip Hop, Evolution, Triumph, those, all those rock docs. So you know it's excellently done. You just know that, right? Yep. Um, I really enjoyed this docu-series about music that I mostly dislike. And uh, there were parts that I did like, though, like the country episode and talking about the outlaw country um, scene, you know, that was really cool. And there's, you know, interviews with Nico Case. The Britpop one was good. There were lots of bands in there that, you know, other than Oasis and Blur that I do enjoy. Yep. 
probably my least favorite episode of the series was the one on festivals, but that one is on the SS tree because it featured an extensive interview from Black Flag soundman Dave Ratt. Oh, yeah. Which was interesting to see, you know, Dave Ratt talk about the festival scene, knowing where he came from. Uh, the Brill Building episode had Danita Sparks on it. So there's there's some, definitely some good stuff there. Yeah, uh, Mario talks about rat sound and, you know, hauling gear out to these generator parties and stuff. And right. like Gary Tovar and Golden Voice, etc. He talks about that kind of stuff yeah. in the interview too. Cool. All right, so recommends. And first we're going to go to San Diego on these recommends, okay? Mm-hmm. The first one I'm going to recommend is this new record by the band Plosives. This is a self-titled record 2022 on Swami Records. And this might be my first top 10 material of the year. It's that good. This is John Reese from Rocket from the Crypt, Rob Crow from Pinback, Happy Vegetable, Adam Willard from Custom Floor. Remember Custom Floor, Brant? That Vaguely. Clear, Vaguely. The clear, clear Day record from 93 on Analog Sound Recordings. I recommended that to you way, way back. Um, and then Jordan Clark. But it's just... You know, if you've got John Reese and Rob Crow and the rest of these guys on this record, you know it's going to be good. But this record is great. So check that one out. Also, though, on Swami Records from this year is John Reese's record, Ride the Wild Night. That's a great record. I, I probably like the Plosives record better so far. This is a, a collection of musicians from the area I would say mostly, I think. I don't know all of them super deeply, but it's got Chris Prescott from Fishwife, No Knife, Pinback, and Tanner. Like, that's huge for me. Jason Clare from Hot Snakes, Night Marchers, even uh, Glenn from Truman's Water. Just great. Two great uh, San Diego releases on Swami Records from 2022, one of which probably top 10. It's that good. And since you're in San Diego and we're talking about rock docs, make sure you check out the It's Gonna Blow doc on San Diego Music Underground. Many of these people are uh, are in that uh, documentary, so you should check that one out. Okay. Also on the recommends front, I mentioned this way, way back, but I've got an update. But first, I got to ask you, Brant, I don't know who's on first, but... Uh, what's on base? You got that right. Because the real manic time, SLW and Watt LP, is finally out on vinyl. There's been a huge delay to get it out on vinyl because why, Brant? Uh, Adele's vinyl needs. Exactly, Adele's vinyl needs. Now, it's out on vinyl. You can pre-order it. I, I did right away because I do enjoy this record. 30 tracks. It also comes with Sam Lockward, a, a zine. I think he has put together a zine. And if it's anything like the last cassette that they put out, there's probably like a bit of a vignette for each song, as I recall. But here's the real update, too. They also released 30 videos one for each of the tracks on on YouTube. So you can go to the SLW and Watt channel and check out all of these videos for this new record. So check that out. Okay. Is Watt are like is Watt in these some of these videos? Yeah. He is. He's it's just some of them it's him um like it looks like a webcam and he's like playing along to the tracks on bass, like sitting in an office chair, but he's still making like, you know, micro watt faces and stuff and it's it's just killer okay yeah so check that one I, out i can picture the office chair scene because i've seen him get interviewed from that from that office chair yeah and he's playing like it looks like a 
like kind of a yellow or a white jazz bass just sitting there in the chair playing along to the tracks yeah. and it's it's worth checking out okay finally i'm going to close out on a bit of a book report okay so i've got three dimension the first two they look like they've been out since 2020 but i just became aware of them the first one is called larger than life black flag memorabilia 1979 to 1986 it's over 400 pages, I guess, documenting Black Flag memorabilia. I haven't seen it yet, but it has a discography. It describes all 11 lineups. It has lyrics. It has a year-by-year -year timeline with hundreds of flyers kind of aligning with the, the show list. Mm. So it, it looks really, really cool. Obviously, we would be interested in that. So check that out. Larger Than Life, Black Flag memorabilia, 79 to 86. It looks like it was... I couldn't find the the author per se. It looks like a bunch of people kind of got together and it looks like it's a, you know, a self-released type of book. Okay. Um, the other one I found from also from 2020 apparently is called Ripper, 1980 to 83 and beyond. And the reason that this is relevant, a bit of a tie-in to Jim, although it's a different era from when Jim was in the area, I, I think, it is subtitled From the South Bay to the World, American Hardcore, 1980 to 83 and beyond. And Ripper was an early 80s hardcore punk zine from the Bay Area, and it collects all but issue one of the zine, apparently. Again, I haven't seen this either, um, but it has articles and interviews by or with Black Flag, DOA, Social Unrest, The Fix, Dead Kennedys, Undertones, Angry Samoans, Wasted Youth, TSOL, Bad Brains, Crucifix, MDC, Necros, Husker Du, so... Anyone who's mildly interested in that area, that scene, and these bands, especially the ones on the tree, definitely check that one out. And then finally, Brent, closing out my book report is this one. Mm. We Can Be the New Wind. Yeah. Remember that one? Oh, I remember it. Remember? Yeah. Okay, so this is the latest book by Alexandros Anisiadis on Earth Island Books. Alexandros put out that Crossover the Edge book, which really talked about how there was one stream of punk in the mid 80s that went metal. This is the stream that, you know, didn't go metal. It's the one that is described as, in this book anyways, the interaction of punk, hardcore punk, power pop, and neo garage with alternate rock in the 1980s. Super ambitious book, and it is a good read, despite a few shortcomings. I'm only, I'm only like halfway done too, yeah. but... But it feels pretty random, much less focused than the Cross Over the Edge book because it is so ambitious, I would say. It's not a fatal flaw. It's just random sometimes. There are definitely some omissions, but how could there not be? Like, for example, he mentions the band Apology, which is great. Like, no one has written a chapter on the band Apology before. So, like, no slight there. But I was really hoping that there would be some discussion on grave goods, as you know. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like a bit of a, a, a underground self-press type of thing, too, in that there's there are a lot of, I would say, errors or typos. It doesn't necessarily, you know, detract from the book, but it is it is distracting sometimes because I do love this music and I love reading about it. Um, and none of that stops me from enjoying the read. People should really check it out. And, you know, I am also discovering a ton of bands, which is my absolute favorite thing about it. I've got a massive list. And check out some of these bands who are on the SS tree that are covered in this book, okay? Yeah. 
to Damascus, all, down by law, big drill car, slovenly, screaming trees, sister double happiness, skin yard, chemical people, dinosaur junior, dag nasty, always August, alternatives. Remember when we were going through those bands and like no one had written anything about them? Mm-hmm. Now there's yeah. some out there, right? Yeah. Sebado, Das Damen, Volcano Sons, Husker Du. There are also great sections on DC, the Paisley Underground. Canada, talking about some of my faves like the Nils and the Doughboys. Um, but here's a big tie in to this episode and our interview with Jim. Check out this piece from the foreword of the book by Mike Gitter, of course, from the Triple X fanzine. And he's talking about what happened in the mid 80s that created all of these offshoots from just hardcore punk. This is what Mike Gitter says in the foreword What happened? A number of things. First and foremost, the kids that picked up instruments and wrangled out one minute and 37 second screeds of unwitting brilliance simply learned to play. They got bored. The more creative types recalled punk as a kicking against the pricks of complacency and made it a riot of their own. Let's face it. Did we really want our subculture defined by cartoon Mohicans on TV shows like Chips and Quincy MD? Looking back, it has always been the bands that deviated from Rulebook that swayed my interest. Most of these are covered in Alex's book that you hold in your hands right now. In many ways, those deft musical rule breakers opened up a generation to the possibility of possibility. As soon as the Goon Squad started showing up at gigs and it stopped being fun, it was time to split the scene, at least for a little while. L.A. had its Paisley Underground typified by post-punkers like the Three O'Clock and the Dream Syndicate. Bands like X incorporated elements of country in their sound and formed new yet familiar bands like the Knitters in the process. There was 45 Grave, Christian Death, and the Goth Contingent. Entire scenes started to shift. Austin, Texas had funk punks. The Big Boys, their bluesy homies, the Dicks, and those weirdos, the Butthole Surfers. There were the early metallurgists like Corrosion of Conformity and Void, extensively covered in the author's crossover book, and the endless stream of free jazz fixated musical, often overindulgence, that came from the Black Flag anchored SST Records Empire, which deserves a full book treatment in its own right. Yeah. And guess what? <laughs> Got one. We've got one with Jim Rulin's book. So really looking forward to getting into the interview with Jim. Yeah. Awesome, man. And that's all I got. All right. Let's get into some program annihilator. History lesson, part one. All right. Like I said, it's a, it's a compilation and it has tracks that we've covered before, tracks that we're going to cover. And it's, it's hard to think of this comp as anything other than like just pure promo for the label. Yeah. Well, this is so. This is the second one, the the original program annihilator comp, subtitled "A Soundtrack for Destruction," as mm-hmm. is this one. Yeah, came out in 1986 as SST 66. Uh, that one had Vitus, Flag, Overkill, DC3, Swa, and Worm. So, a few of the same same bands. I think the idea of that one and of this one was was to showcase some of the heavier bands on the label, maybe to try and reach some of that audience we were talking about last week with Pat Howitt. Yeah, kind of the heavy meddlers. Although this one has, you know, descendants on it, but it's some heavy descendants. Yeah, oh, they definitely picked the heavier tracks by by some of the bands, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, tr- I think trying to, to reach that emerging specialty metal show that was starting 
to come out on campus radios around this time, especially as you just mentioned, I think a lot of punks got more into metal as crossover was starting to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so for this record, the spiel on the back of the album is the same, I believe, as on the first one. You referenced some of that at the start of the episode. 16 tracks from eight bands. Uh, the first one was 18 tracks from six bands. So we've got a few more bands on this one, mm-hmm. a few less tracks. We've heard all of these tracks previously, except for four of them, which we'll touch on when we go through the tracks. But before we do that, let's tee up this interview with Jim. So... Uh, I'm certain everyone listening to this right now has already read his book, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records on Hatchet Books. Uh, But if reading isn't your thing, there is also an audiobook version of it, which Jim reads, that you can check out. But before before we throw it to Jim, I thought I'd read some flap copy, Ryan, to kind of set the tone for people who just... I can't imagine there's anybody listening to this who doesn't already know who Jim, Jim is or what this book is about, but... Do it, man. Flap it. Okay. This is what it says. Greg Ginn started SST Electronics in the sleepy beach town of Hermosa Beach, California, to supply ham radio enthusiasts with tuners and transmitters. But when Ginn wanted to launch his band, Black Flag, no one was willing to take them on. Determined to bring his music to the masses, Ginn turned SST into a record label. On the back of Black Flag's relentless touring, guerrilla marketing, and refusal to back down, SST became the sound of the underground. In Corporate Rock Sucks, music journalist Jim Ruland relays the unvarnished story of SST Records from its remarkable rise in notoriety to its infamous downfall. With records by Black Flag, Minutemen, Husker Du, Bad Brains, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., Screaming Trees, Soundgarden, and scores of obscure yet influential bands, SST was the most popular indie label by the mid-1980s. Until a tsunami of legal jeopardy, financial peril, and dysfunctional management brought the empire tumbling down. Throughout this investigative deep dive, Ruland leads readers through SST's tumultuous history and epic catalog. Featuring never-before-seen interviews with the label's former employees, as well as musicians, managers, producers, photographers, video directors, and label heads, Corporate Rock Sucks presents a definitive narrative history of the 80s punk and alternative rock scenes and shows how the music industry was changed forever. Jim Ruland is co-author of Do What You Want with Bad Religion and My Damage with Keith Morris, the founding vocalist of Black Flag, Circle Jerks, and Off!, Ruland has been writing for punk zines such as Flipside and Razor Cake for more than 25 years, and his work has received awards from Reader's Digest and the National Endowment for the Arts. Should we uh, maybe annihilate this week and turn it over to Jim? Let's do it. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Jim Ruland. Jim, thanks for being on the show. Hey, hey, I'm super excited to be here. All right. Yeah, how's, she go- how's she going, eh, Jim? How's she going, eh? Um, that does not register as a question with me, uh, but I think it means, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. <laughs> in, Cana- in Canadian. We get teased a lot about our accents, so, you know. All right, so we're here to talk today about your fantastic new book, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records, and Ryan's joining us for the interview today. Yeah, again, thanks, Jim, for being on the show. We obviously uh, love the book. There, It's just full of tasty nugs 
Um, and we, we both read a ton of books, right? Like everything from academic to encyclopedic reference books to more narrative stuff. Uh, the book strikes a really great balance, um, I thought, and reading it, just awesome. And I will also say, it's going to be so sweet for like the next 170 episodes or so just to pilfer material from your rad book. That's going to be awesome. So we'll get into the book in a in a bit more detail later on here, but I want to start from the start a bit. And I understand you live in San Diego now, but you're originally from Northern Virginia near DC. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was born in New York and grew up in a Navy family. So we moved around a lot. So, uh, ah. but I, uh, I went to grade school and high school in Northern Virginia. So that's, uh, um, uh, kind of where I say I'm from. Right. But um, San Diego is where I've lived longer than anywhere else. I think I've been here, I don't know, math is not my strong suit, but a long time. So I was interested about you having, uh, you know, grown up near D.C. I'm interested in hearing about what were, you know, like your earliest memories of music. What grabbed you in those, you know, primary school, high school days? Well, I remember, uh, I remember my first 45 and it was, um, I think it was Tommy Two-Tone. Oh, yeah. Um, if that, um, this the one about uh, pumping gas for a living, or what's that song? Do you know what I'm talking about? I thought Tommy Two-Tone was 8675309. Oh, okay, then I'm wrong. It Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I love that song, but it's an even earlier one. that. But I was, I was like, a, I got a clock radio. And I started listening to Casey Kasem Top 40. And being an obsessive little kid, I started writing writing every song down, right? <laughs> which meant I was like a little uh, glued to my radio. That didn't last too long, but I loved like Blondie. I loved ABBA. And I loved, absolutely loved the Village People. And I had all of their albums. And I remember that was not a very popular choice in my household. I had two sisters and a brother. And one of the albums, I think there was four or five, there's, there's quite a few, uh, came with like a gatefold poster that just like kept unfolding, right, with each member of the village people. And uh, I had it on my wall in my bedroom. And uh, one day my brother came in with a thumbtack and like stabbed out all the eyes of the <gasps> village people. And I, oh, I was uh, very upset about dude. that. Dude. Yeah. But um, but my brother and I, we shared a, a record player, you know, to get to, like, the punk rock part of our story. It was the Ramones that really uh, got me wound up. I think, uh, you know, Rocket to Russia was one of the first ones we had. Leave Home was another. And uh, I just made tapes and that I would listen to while on my paper route, while walking around in the dark delivering the washington post and uh from there i got into devo and another uh, cutting edge recording artist that's pretty obscure you may not have heard of named uh, pat benatar uh, <laughs> really really uh, edgy stuff for me <laughs> i mean so and that and that was it did your brother I, turn you on to like the ramones and stuff i thought i read that your mom maybe took you to a ramones gig she did. She took us to uh, the concert in the set. My parents were really, were really cool, and I mean they're very strict, first of all. But they grew up in New York City. My mom's from Brooklyn. My dad's from Bronx, 
and they were kind of like dismayed by the state of suburbia where like we're always asking for rides to you know baseball practice or the rec center or a friend's house and they weren't really too cool with that so like as soon as we moved to virginia we ended up moving a second time into a house that was close to school close to the library close to the rec center so we could just kind of do our own thing you know the whole free range parenting that was very popular in the 70s Mm -hmm. but they were also very strict and like they wouldn't like give us money to do things. If we wanted to like be on a sports team, we had to get a job and raise the money ourselves or save our allowance and stuff like that. So, but we, if we save money for tickets to go see the Ramones, we could talk my mom into, into taking us. Wow. And, uh, and she did. And, uh, it was kind of a life changing moment, but also really only in retrospect, I did not like, you know, shave my head or steal a leather jacket. I was still a very timid, rule-following kid who went to Catholic school, you know. And uh, But I was a bad student, and <laughs> I enrolled in, uh, I enlisted in the Navy after high school and uh, got sent out to San Diego, uh, California. And that's really where I became a punk rocker because I met all, I got exposed to all kinds of music, from all kinds of different people, like punks and post-punkers and metalheads and skinheads. But also, you know, I kind of reached the breaking point of, like, what I could handle in terms of rules, right? Mm. I stupidly enlisted in the Navy to get away from, my, you know, the strict household, and then I found out what, what strict was really all about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I Before we get to San Diego and the Navy, I have, I have a quick follow-up, though, about being in Virginia, Virginia, it's interesting to hear those bands that really grabbed your ear. There's there's a thread I see of, you know, very hook-laden pop music, you know, whether it's Devo, the Ramones, or even Pat Benatar, which is cool. I'm interested, though, to know whether, like, even during high school, I suppose, were you exposed or were you aware of, like, the DC hardcore scene at all? You were there with, like, like during revolution summer did you see like Mises is a pig signs or anything like that no no none of it absolutely completely wow. oblivious because the music i liked was the music i liked and i kind of knew that other people my age didn't like it and uh so i just kept it to myself it wasn't something that i you know sought out um from other people i didn't think of myself as a punk at all yeah, that that whole, uh, you know, that's funny. Like, I was, uh, after I enlisted and was in the Navy, um, and I was at a skinhead's house in Ocean Beach in San Diego, and we, we made a bunch of tapes because um, we were getting ready to go out to sea for six months. He was like, here, check this out. I think you'll like it. And um, it was Minor Threat, or I forget which record it was, but it was Minor Threat was on it. And on the back, it had the mailing address. From Arlington. your hometown. Well, yeah, Arlington, Virginia. <laughs> and Arlington is where my high school was. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> wow. Hey. But here, hey. here's something interesting you told me about, Jim. I'm not sure if you've, you've mentioned this. But when you were researching the book, you went back to Virginia, maybe to visit family as well or whatever. But you went to Q Studios and realized you grew up right around i think you if i'm remembering right you told me you delivered papers like right past q studios yeah it it would have been right on the edge of my paper route it was a little bit past the library and it was it's located near like this 
um, near a movie theater. And, um, you know, it was like, it was the close, basically it was in the same uh, mall, mini mall as like the convenience store closest to the rec center. So if you wanted to get like a cold drink, that's where you went. And of course I had no idea it was there. Um, but around the time that I graduated high school and was coming back during visits on leave, that would have been when, uh, HR was, uh, doing his thing, uh, <laughs> at, at Q. Small so that, world, man. Yeah. If you, yeah, only that, knew, uh, if you only knew then, right? Yeah. So you're in San Diego after high school, joined the Navy. And when I was reading up about that, that really caught my interest because I remember as a kid reading like you know, articles in Maximum Rock and Roll about punks in the military and, and things like that. So I, I was interested, I was going to ask, but you, you mentioned already, it sounds like your dad was in the Navy. Yeah. And, and so how do you reconcile someone who's kind of like turning into a punk, which is, you know, supposedly against all authority, while at the same time, you have to be very focused on, you know, following rules, chain of command in order to protect yourself and your fellow sailors. Like, how, <laughs> how, how did you grapple with that? Well, I mean, um, it was a kind of rebellion in a way. I mean, I know that sounds like, you know, what are you, who are you kidding? You know, uh, my dad was a naval officer and I went to, you know, went to Catholic school, right? I went to prep school and, I mean, you don't send your kid to four years of private school so they can go enlist in the Navy afterwards, right? That's, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can do that, you know, for a lot less money by going to public school. So I was aware that I was like, you know, a disappointment and joining the Navy was a way to both salvage that, but also rebel because my dad was an officer and I was going to be going in as an enlisted man. So is it different if you join like as an enlisted man versus an officer's son or something? Well, yeah. I mean, there's officers have a lot of prestige and a lot of power. And enlisted men don't. Where I was sent to deck division and there's a lot of turnover in deck division because there's a lot of drugs. If you fail out of, say, uh, you, you join the Navy to be a, an electrician or, you know, fire missiles or be a pilot or join the Naval Academy and you fail out of those schools you end up being sent to deck division. Mm. And um, in fact, we had a guy who had failed out of, uh, failed his chemistry test at the Naval Academy and got sent to the fleet. So, um, that's where I ended up. And it was like a very low morale, kind of dirtbag central. I mean, I'm not trying to disrespect the Navy, but it was, it was not a place where, uh, you, you know, you had to kind of watch your ass and watch every, watch your back. Well, it sounds like you ran into some people though, that, either shared common interests or turned you on to some good tunes. You mentioned the skinhead where you're dubbing some minor threat tapes off. Of. I read about you had a buddy named Skip that was turning you on to Bauhaus and stuff like that. So did you run, right. into, a, run into a lot of punks and stuff in the Navy? Well, yeah. I mean, I think um, the thing is, is that I was a, I was someone who knew absolutely nothing and I think the people around me realized how little I knew and how open-minded I was mm. to listening to new music, whether that was Metallica or Beastie Boys, PSOL, you know, Bauhaus, whatever it was. I, I was just a sponge for experience. And being my time in the Navy just kind of nurtured that some more because we traveled around the world 
and we were kind of kept to our job on the ship. And when we hit the beach, uh, it was up to you to kind of make something happen. You know, either try to sneak your way into a club, go to a show, get someone to buy you some booze, you know, just whatever, make, make some kind of trouble. And, uh, I ended up being pretty good at that. <laughs> Do you, uh, did, were there any noteworthy uh, shows that you saw on the West Coast when you were on shore leave back then? Yeah, um, I saw um, Peter Murphy with the Lords of the New Church on Acid. <laughs> I saw uh, Jane's Addiction open up for Love and Rockets. I went and saw Hunter S. Thompson also on LSD because how else are you going to? Um I'm trying to remember, like, I remember we would go to this all-ages goth club sometimes, and that was kind of cool. We would go to, what we did is go to Tijuana a lot. I have it that after you maybe ended your term in the Navy, that you went back to Virginia for college. Is that right? That's right. And again, I don't know the dates, for example, but I'm thinking, again, I'm going, man, Jim was there in D.C. And so I'm thinking, this is the Fugazi era. Did you get exposed to any of that i did i did i mean wh- i went to school in radford virginia which is in the southwest part of the state about five hours from dc so um you know i saw um a f- some of the bands you know like the closest like bookstore was like 45 minutes away in the campus of a uh, university of virginia uh, virginia tech so um there wasn't a lot of culture in, in Radford and not a lot of bands coming through. So sometimes there was a local punk band called um, Cock Ring and they were hilarious to watch. They were kind of like, <laughs> I don't remember what they sounded like, but they reminded me of like the spits in the way that they would always, you know, they would dress up for shows. Like they dressed up as Merciful Fate one time. They dressed up as you know, Ramones, another, and they were always tell you were always hearing them. This was going to be their last show. Like every, <laughs> every time they played like last show ever, bro. But, you know, I saw a handful of bands, um, you know, I was in college, so I was getting into all kinds of, uh, I was definitely into Sonic youth and ministry and, and things like that. But, yeah. but again, it really wasn't until I went back to California that my musical education, you know, resumed in earnest. Let's talk about that. You found your way back then to was it L.A. to begin with or South Bay? I uh, went. I went to L.A. I was in North Hollywood for a year, and then and what brought you back out then? Um, well, I knew I wanted to be in California, so I had this idea that I was going to go to go to L.A. get residency in California and go to uh, um, enroll in Berkeley or something like that. Um, mm. Because I wanted to be, I was in love with literature with a capital L and I wanted to be a writer and, and all that good stuff. And I started working at this coffee shop in North Hollywood and I started to realize just how ill-equipped I was for getting into a place like Berkeley. I had like no chance, you know, with, uh, with my grades at Radford weren't that great and um, there were all kinds of holes in my record and and it was, you know, supremely competitive, and it wasn't cheap anymore. So, a customer at the coffee shop where I worked said, "You should go check out Flagstaff." I'm like, "Where's Flagstaff?" It's like it's in Arizona. I'm like, "I don't want to go to the desert." It's like, "No, no, Flagstaff's in the mountains." So I did check it out, and they had a program there 
and they uh, and they basically uh, offered me uh, um, a job teaching while I got my master's degree there. And um, while I was out there, I met Todd Taylor and Sean Carswell. T Todd and I were uh, roommates. We met in like a creative writing class. And Todd, he his big dream was to go write for Flipside. Mm. And you know, having just spent a year in LA, I just introduced him to all my friends. Like that'd be that's a very easy easy dream to achieve, right? Um, you just got to be there and volunteer, and and you're in. And so Todd did that, and uh, within a matter of months, he was you know um, played a pretty crucial role role there, and he started sending me. Uh, immediately started sending me CDs to review for Flipside. Okay, I was going to ask, how did you get hooked up with Flipside? But it sounds like you you got the hook up through Flagstaff. Yeah, so it was kind of a weird, weird thing. I was going tons of shows in um, in uh, LA, and but then when um, after I graduated, I stayed on to teach for another year, and then I went back to LA, and and now I could. I had all the access that you could dream of um, because every band goes through Los Angeles. So, oh, yeah. Bands and what, a, what a great era, too. When you say, yeah. Jim, that you, you were you know really into literature, was that something you discovered later, like after the Navy, or did you read a lot as a kid? Uh, I read a lot as a kid, but, um, you know, like I said, I was such a bad student that, you know, whatever... You know, it's funny, like my mom, uh, she recently, she passed away last year in September and earlier this year I was going through some of her things and I found this uh, Mother's Day like booklet that I had made for her when I was like, I don't know, like eight or nine or maybe 10. Like when, when you're learning, when you're basically learning how to write, but you don't really have a good handle on spelling yet. Mm -hmm. So like the booklet was this photocopied series of questions you know like what's what's special about your mom right you, know, you could give your mom a special day what would you do and so and then you would answer the questions and the last question is um what do you want to do with your life and i wrote i want to be i want to write stories and get paid to write my stories and that was a huge revelation for me because i didn't know that that i had put that out in the universe at such a young age wow um I had kind of forgotten it because I'd, you know, there was really nothing about my academic record and my experience in the Navy to like make me think that like I was, you know, destined for any kind of literary, academic, or any anything having to do with books. Really, was was not really for me. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I got in a lot of trouble in the Navy. When you get in trouble in the Navy, they take away your liberty, and. Um, mm -hmm. So I read a lot of books while I was just sitting on the ship watching everybody go on short leave. Was it, you know, a specific genre that really bit you? Like you mentioned well, Hunter S. Thompson. That's like, I feel like that's, you're primed at that age to get into like the beat writers, for example. Yeah. Like I had one experience in the Navy that was pretty amazing. Like someone draw it up in a movie any better in that, you know, we had this, uh, you know, box of books that would occasionally get filled up with paperbacks, right? And that was our library. That was what I would read. So I read a lot of Stephen King and Dean Coots and stuff. But before we went on our six-month Westpac, 
uh, we went up to San, up to San Francisco. We went like beyond San Francisco up the Sacramento River, probably to pick up a nuclear warhead. But what do I know? <laughs> and um, <laughs> but on the way, uh, I found this book called "On the Road" by yeah. Jack Kerouac. That's it, exactly and, what I thought you might say. I had a similar experience, probably at a similar age. But sorry, go ahead. No, no. And like, as you remember, like the first part of that book is all about San Francisco. Yeah. So like I read that book and, you know, I hit the beach and I did not sleep. I just wanted to do everything and cram as much, you know, life and adventure into that experience. It it makes you, you know, it makes you think about kind of what you're doing with your life, right? That book. At that age, it sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Jim, that you mentioned your mom, and I'm sorry to, to hear how she passed away, but I was reading about your mom, and she was an avid quilter, as I understand it. <laughs> yeah. And and I seem to recall you mentioning how uh, you collect books, like your mom collected bolts of fabric. Yeah, unfortunately. And, and you, were, you were just talking about how you threw out into the universe at a young age about how you want to write and get paid for money. And I was thinking about how quilters often tell stories. They're storytellers through their quilts, right? And I was wondering if there's a common thread there, perhaps, you know, in terms of you becoming a storyteller. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it does. You know, uh, my mom was a pretty remarkable lady um, for a lot of different reasons. But I think maybe... The main one is that, well, she lost both of her parents while she was a teenager. So um, she was an extremely independent person uh, because she had to be, right? Mm. And uh, But the first thing that she did when she graduated from nursing school in the early 60s was she drove across the country and she moved to a little town called Hermosa Beach. Isn't that a trip? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it all comes full circle, hey? Yeah, it really kind of does. So, um, so yeah, that's why, um, if you notice in the beginning of the book, I dedicate the book uh, to my mom, mm-hmm. um, who was the first person in our family to fall in love with Hermosa Beach. Uh-huh. Wow. So, let's get back to Flipside for a second. Did you write there kind of right up until its end? I did. Can you lay some spiels on us about like some some of your best flip side interviews, writings, articles, some things that really stand out for you? I mean, I would have I would have only been able to get the odd flip side where I grew up in Canada. You could always get maximum rock and roll, but flip side showed up like twice a year if you're lucky. Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. Um, it, it kind of all blurs together, to be honest with you. And, um, and also I was drinking a lot and partying a lot. So, um, I, I really appreciate this, uh, this voyage you've taken your listeners on of my, my, um, the formation of my writing years, but Mm -hmm. it would also be a little bit remiss if we didn't mention that I was, you know, um, fucking up pretty badly, um, you know, along the way on a pretty regular basis, um, just enough to keep, keep forward momentum, but not much else. But um, but yeah, uh, Flipside was great in the in that um, I, I I don't know I can't speak for the early days of Flipside when it was truly epic in the seventies, right? Um, mm. When I was starting out, I was there in the nineties, and um, 
and there was like there was a lot of regrettable um content and some of it i was responsible for like a lot of like gratuitous uh, pornography and things like that and um but we had a whole section of Flipside that was letters to the magazine and if you might recall there was like a pretty healthy part of the uh California prison population was regularly uh, writing to, uh, to to people at Flipside, but like there was, I found a, an issue in the '80s, and it just kind of speaks to how just kind of cool Flipside was, even right up to the end. Sorry, I said '80s, I meant '90s. I think it was '98, and uh, I had interviewed the band H2O, the hardcore band H2O. Yeah, yeah. And um, I sat in on an interview with uh, Gary Newman, which like two very different kinds of performers yeah. um there was an interview with bad religion in that in that uh avail i think damnation was on the cover i mean it was just you know chock full of you know oh, yeah. and so Flipside was kind of the anti-maximum rock and roll in terms of like how you know mmr was very uh didactic right about mm-hmm. what could be in the magazine and and Flipside really wasn't and that means, you know, unfortunately, you had a lot of like, uh, you know, some people ran with that, right? I, I say, unfortunately, tongue in cheek, and that there was a lot of ska coverage and a lot of, uh, you know, tiki stuff in the '90s, as you might recall. And oh uh, yeah, there, there there was a lot of that in the magazine at those days. But around the time that um, Flipside went under, Razor Cake started, and that's yeah. That's when I moved to the South Bay. That's when I moved to Manhattan Beach. Yeah, I was going to ask about Razor Cake because I know you kind of, I feel like some people from the last Flipside crew kind of cooked up Razor Cake and got it off the ground. Is that is that close? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Todd Taylor and Sean Carswell started Razor Cake in, I think, 2001. And it's still going. Yeah. And uh, Todd was for sure one of the... Um, you know, players in uh, at Flipside. Now he came in, like I said, fairly late in the game, but you know he had a lot of connections. You know, with the people and like when Razor Cake started, they used the same printer. They had a lot of the same advertisers. It kind of looked a lot like Flipside, and mm-hmm. it had a slick cover and a newsprint uh, pages, and uh, and it's kind of uh, become its own entity. You know, more and more and more distinct with each issue. I feel. Yeah, well, it's like, I'm trying to think of any other zines out there like it that get the the distro that it does. There's not many that I can think of, like in actual print anymore, right? Right. Not in the United States. I mean, um, and it's mainly based on uh, subscriptions. I mean, they tried, you know, getting in bookstores, but then they were just getting hammered with returns and distributors who would dicks or just go under or not be they're just not reliable same story that any indie label goes through same same thing that mr greg yin dealt with yeah again well speaking of greg yin we should probably get into the book a bit here but uh, i want to kick it off with a question for you i'm curious whether when you were writing corporate rock sucks I understand you were maybe at the same time like low-key obsessed with Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and (laughs) Ed Sanders' book, The Family, if I have that right. And I'm wondering whether the SST 
and the Manson family threads were like doing the creepy crawl in your head while you were writing the book and you were seeing, you know, learning a bit about the family and kind of the perspective that, you know, Greg and Ray had on the world and their artwork that came from that. Were there any connections for you? Oh yeah. And there, another connection is, is that, um, is the, uh, the Evan Dando book, the project that I'm working on. And oh, yeah? he's, he's a huge fan of, uh, um, of those books and and has covered uh, Charlie Manson and um, you know it has made Charlie Manson inspired songs. I mean, I, I think you can point to his influence on like a half dozen uh, tracks in the uh, in the early um, Lemonheads canon. So it was all kind of working together. So I felt like it was something uh, that I was you know drawn to. I had read Helter Skelter, you know, um, probably in the Navy. But then um, I never read The Family, so that was kind of cool. Mm. Your earlier books, Jim, uh, Forest of Fortune, I think, is that that's a fiction book that you wrote, right? Uh, yeah, it's a novel. Talk about those two styles of writing. Like, which what do you prefer? And, like, did you kind of just, is that, like, what you want to do and you or plan to do and then you kind of fell into this music writing or... You know, did you always set out to do both? Is that something you want to return to? Well, um, I think the answer to that, I didn't really, I didn't fall into anything. I, I love to write. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to tell stories. I'm the kind of writer who has a million ideas for stuff. I, I'm never at a loss for an idea to chase down. And I, maybe it's um, overcompensation for the fact that I, you know, um, don't have the kind of background that a lot of writers have right that i just feel like i i want to try to do everything right i want to write a profile of somebody in a magazine i want to do i want to do interviews but it's it's like goes back to the stuff from the navy it's like i want the experience that goes with it right you know the idea of like climbing into a van and interviewing a band and having some beers with them and then going backstage or into the audience and watching them play was all something that I just, it was, it seemed like a lot of fun to me. And plus it was great access to the music that I love with fiction. That's something that, uh, you know, before I got exposed to all that is, it was really, you know, intoxicated to me and it still is. When I was writing Corporate Rock Sucks, I was, during the day, I would work on the book, and I'd do interviews and revise, and at night, I was um, I was kind of workshopping a, a novel that I had written a couple years before and kind of um, sprucing it up as a way to kind of cleanse my palate, you mm. know? So, um, so to answer your question, I'm, I'm, I'm always writing something, whether it's, whether it's a profile or book review for the LA Times, or whether it's a short story that may never get published or a novel project that hopefully will, or if it's a, you know, a work for hire project or, you know, something else that I've got going on. I'm, I'm never not writing. Yeah. Well, it's like any, any other art form painting or uh, writing music or just, you know, playing an instrument. I think it's something you're likely compelled to do (laughs) and, you know, Anybody, any writer will tell you, you know, if you want to get good at it, just write. Yeah, read and write. I mean, it's great. We don't, we don't have any gear. I mean, not really, you know. Yeah. Okay. So when you, when you decided you were going to do this book, 
did you have a plan for how you you were going to tell this story like you know just looking at the the catalog and all the bands and i feel like i would have had a panic attack like trying to figure out how to how to document the whole the whole thing your your instincts are right on the money Brandon. <laughs> it was it was a lot of freaking out going on in the ruin household that's that's the thing about selling a book is then you have to write it um so I don't know. Um, I the fact that I had um, you know written the "Do What You Want," which was the challenge, most challenging project I'd ever taken on, gave me a lot of courage mm-hmm. um, that I could figure it out, right? Um, because I had similar feelings at the beginning of that one, and you know because Bad Religion has a catalog of almost you know four hundred songs. And I was like, where do I start? You know, how do I, how do I get my, begin to get my head around it? Because as much as I was a fan of the band, um, I wasn't a super fan. I think it's fair to say my wife knew more about religion songs than I did at the beginning of the project. But I started with set lists and I just expanded from there from my own interest and my own curiosity and be like, oh yeah, I forgot about this song and let's learn more about this record and just go from there. And I did something very similar with with uh, SST in terms of managing the um, um, you know the the huge output about instead of like nearly 400 songs it was nearly 400 albums. But mm-hmm. the thing that really was kind of my saving grace is that the output was pretty slow in the beginning, right? Right. So um, you know I was able to kind of hit you know find my voice, hit my stride, and get things going before. Um, before you got overwhelmed (laughs) yeah before i got to like 85 to 87 right you know so that 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 was kind of like my approach but uh it's like i think with the bad religion book i knew i realized like look uh, i'm beginning this i'm beginning this book and i know a fraction of what i need to know to finish it you know when i got to the end you know i i had the information that i didn't have at the beginning and so i could put my trust that that would happen with this project I think that probably helps though. I mean, I, I just, I'm relating it to what we do. And I mean, despite your claim in, in your book, we, we're not experts. Um, we're also, you know, there, there are releases still to come that I have never heard. Right. So like that's part of it is, is learning about it and, and researching it. Well, I also had a, uh, an ACE in the hole, so to speak. And that, um, when I started, uh, you know, Keith gave me a list of emails and uh, email addresses to start with, Keith Morris. And um, so I, I kind of feel like I had a good uh, leg up. And um, and, it, and it was funny because um, I was at Keith's house for, I don't know, a couple weeks into the project when I got an email from Mike Watt, you know, basically explaining, uh, I hope you understand, but... Um, for legal reasons, I can't participate in this, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh no, you know, because he was one of the first people I reached out to because, you know, at, you know, at, you know, he, he's a great interview and, and he'll talk your ear off. And, and he had talked my ear off when I interviewed him in the past. So I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? And then a lot of those names that Keith had given me weren't getting back to me. And it wasn't until I, I talked to Mugger and at the end of the interview, I kind of confided. I was like, hey, Mugger, I don't, I'm not sure what to do and that people aren't getting back to me. It's, there's a pandemic happening, so I don't want to be you know, a, that 
that person who's you know bugging people with constantly constant emails and texts when like serious shit is going on and mugger was like oh no they're all on facebook (laughs) i was like what yeah dude just go on facebook they're all there yeah and i was like oh shit i guess i gotta go on facebook because i had deactivated my my account like years before in a fairly public self-righteous way so (laughs) with a little uh as one does so i had to kind of swallow my pride and open up an account and mugger followed me and then a few other people followed me and then sure enough lots of old punks on facebook Mm -hmm. yeah you say in the book um without the blessing of keith morris this project never would have gotten off the ground i'm i'm wondering like are you referencing you know the book that you did with keith in the sense that he gave you uh his blessing like you know to kind of get the the ball rolling on that style of book uh, no, I mean very specifically this project because when I was working on my damage, Keith told me, I wouldn't say he told me, he ranted about all kinds of things off the record about uh, the head of uh, SST that we could never put in print. Right. Uh, and so I knew exactly how he felt. You know, there was no ambiguity there, right? But Keith is, uh, Keith is a remarkable guy and um, he was able to in his mind separate the all the amazing music that came from the label and uh the man who's in charge today and um to his credit he was like no go for it Mm -hmm. okay so you know a lot of the source material that you used for this come from you know existing uh articles and things like i consider myself (laughs) through this podcast pretty adept at finding stuff and you found shit that I didn't know existed. Like, how did you find all this stuff? Did you have people helping you? Uh, well, yeah, I, I listened to this rad podcast called, you don't know Mojack, uh, (laughs) because you know, you would talk about your spiels and you'd mention a book and, uh, I'd be like, shit, I've never heard of this book. And I'd go, uh, and I go look it up. So yeah, uh, well, that was a huge help. Well, and, back uh, at you because I'm looking in your index and and finding stuff that I didn't know about too. So, <laughs> well, yep. And I think, uh, and that was very important to me. I know we're getting off track a little bit in our you know uh, mutual appreciation society here, but uh, um, I mean, how many? I know I've heard you say on the phone that it's, I mean, on the phone on the show what a bummer it is to read a book and there's there's no index, there's no actually, oh yeah. There's no like, there's no like, where did it come from? How do you find out more? You know, like, um, and that's just the way it is in the, you know, in the basement press business, you know, and, and with a lot of zines and things. But, um, so I wanted to make sure that everything was documented so that the next person who writes about SST or the aftermath of SST or the next chapter of SST has all that material at their disposal. And, you know, being someone who, you know, got in the van, the parked van, to interview bands at clubs, I wanted to make sure that the other people who did that, you know, 30 years before I did, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, and, you know, got their due. Yeah, I feel like you went full Carducci on your notes, Jim, and that's that's awesome. Thank you. Okay, so one of the people you were able to talk to was Mark Lanigan. I feel like Jim you're probably one of the last people that ever interviewed Mark. 
Um, I don't. No, I mean, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I, I did the the math, which again is not my strong suit. Um, but I'm pretty sure when I talked to him, um, it was only a matter of weeks, or if not days, before he was visited by a journalist from Belfast, and that's where that's how he caught COVID. Mm. But you know, Mark wrote, you know, several books after he got COVID. Yeah. So yeah. he was very prolific. So I, I wouldn't want, I would, you know, quash any kind of rumor that I was anywhere near the last because, because he was able to like, you know, put so much more, more of his stories, more of his self, more of his poetry into the world, you know? Okay. You did an audio book for this. Is this, and you record it, you read it yourself. Is that, is that, did, have you done that previously or is this the first one? This was the first one. Um, what, yeah. What was that like? Uh, Grueling, well, you know, I bet. <laughs> no, I, I I was a little nervous because I was recovering from COVID myself. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of Lanigan, I was like, I was in Belfast and when I caught COVID and had to stay there for, you know, had to extend my trip. I found I tested positive near the end and had to stay on until I could fly home. And one of the books I'd picked up in Belfast was the UK version of Devil in a Coma, and which is just which is Lanigan's book, last book. Where yeah. I shouldn't say that either. I think he's got some poetry that's technically after that, but his last memoir. And man, it's scary as hell. If it's, I don't, I don't recommend reading that while you're recovering from COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to ask about the photographs in this book. Um, like they're unbelievable. Ryan and I were just, we just did a Zoog's Rift episode. Yeah. I, I said, uh, you know, my favorite photo in the book by far is the one of, uh, it's a Naomi Peterson photo of, of uh, Greg and Zoog's. How awesome is it like when you get, you know, a wicked photo in your inbox for your book? Oh man, it was... Uh, that was the most exciting part of the book because by the time I was really dialing into the photos, I had a draft and I was like, okay, okay. Like if I, if I get hit by a car tomorrow, this book is a mess and good luck to whoever has to clean it up. But there's a book it's yeah. done. There's a book exists. Right. And, um, I'll, I'll get it to where it needs to be, you know, whether as much time as they give me, I'll use every day of it. But you know, I also had to spend some time getting the photos and I decided pretty early on that I just didn't want to do that whole photo in insert thing where you get like a dozen or 20 photos stuck in the middle and yep. they kind of mm -hmm. like, they span 30 years and six pages and don't really make a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Other than it's just nice to look at for a few seconds and breaks up the middle of the book. I wanted something that was, uh, you know, I'm from I'm, my background zine, so I wanted something that was, you know, curated where the photo kind of went with the text, right? And, um, you know, I didn't have, you know, quite the resources that, like, say, Joe Carducci does for his books, but um, because I wanted, you know, not being an SST insider, I wanted to make sure that um, the photographers were paid, that everyone who contributed a photo was paid because a lot of these people... Um, have been exploited and continue to be exploited for their work. And I didn't want anyone who contributed to this book in any way to feel taken advantage of, um, especially the photographers. So 
but at the same time, um, you know, I, I was paying for the photos out of my pocket and, um, I, I had, I had a budget. So what I was able to do was, and I guess this is fairly common is that is to negotiate like, um, you know, a, a larger batch of photo photos for a smaller fee. Right. Um, so that's why you'll see like 10 or 10 or a dozen photos by Edward Culver, um, a dozen or so photos from, uh, the Naomi Peterson archive, um, a bunch of photos from spot, which I was super excited to get uh, a dozen photos from wild Don Lewis, who, uh, was kind of a revelation. Yeah, he's somebody you, you know you don't see a lot. Yeah, he was like one of those people that was kind of hiding in plain sight, and that you know he took the cover of the photos of the Stains album, mm-hmm. and his name is on it. And uh, so I just got curious, like, well, what else has he done? And it turns out he had done, um, you know, quite a few things for SST Saint Vitus. Yep. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, uh, those Saint Vitus photos are some of my favorite in the book. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> oh, the one of the best parts about the photos though is there's very few i'm trying to think even i can't even think of one there might be none that i had even seen before like uh, so many of them were first timers which was just awesome and you seem to pick ones that were like a lot of real candid shots you know like people just being themselves not posing and uh, it just made it seem like you know there was this real real scene and all these people that were just kind of hanging out like you know this creative community and like when you when you have a photo of you know it's bob mold and two other guys from two other sst bands just having a smoke outside or whatever like <laughs> those are just awesome photos yeah like i love the who's producer and they've got the Minutemen set list in their hand it just kind of shows that no this was a real you know brotherhood of bands you know yeah they, they weren't just on the same label. They were. They really were uh, in it together. And um, I, I remember. Um, I guess I should use his, the name he asked. To use Wild Don Lewis asked once he sensed that I was serious, um, and I was actually going to like publish his photos and pay him for him. He started looking around for for other stuff he might have, and he said, um, "I think I've got some Black Flag. Would you be interested in those?" And to be honest with you, I kind of wasn't because, I mean, we there are a million photos of, of Henry Rollins in his little black trunks, and I didn't really want <laughs> more of that, right? Yeah. I didn't want to contribute to that. Um, if you want to see that, you can find it pretty easily. Yeah. And um, so I went and um, I said, sure, I'd love to look at it. He's like, okay, well, let me scan them. And then I realized, like, he has black flag photos that he's never <laughs> developed that no one has ever seen. Like, good, what could be on this role, you know? Yeah. And then of course he showed me a photo. Um, it's not Henry Rollins in a little black shorts. He's in a speedo <laughs> and, uh, and he looks like he's about to be molested by a fan. And it was just like, it, it was so tremendous. The energy, you know, between the two at that moment was like, I got to use this photo. Yeah. Thank God the speedos didn't last. (laughs) Hey, you know, let your freak flag fly. (laughs) All right. Uh, what's next, Jim, you mentioned the, the Evan Dando book. Is that, 
is that what you're you're planning next as far as books go yeah uh that's a, a work for hire project so um so i'm not um steering the ship so to speak to use a nautical metaphor um i do have a, a novel in the pipeline that's kind of punk adjacent and i'm very excited about that it's um set in la in the near future and uh, in a world where uh Healthcare has kind of taken a darker turn, and if you uh, if you can't pay your hospital bill, you you don't leave. So um, mm. the story mm. is, story is about this uh, woman who works for an underground organization that busts people out of these prison hospitals, and uh, we meet her on, on a very bad day. That sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you. Where can people go to learn more about you and and to read your newsletter, etc. Oh, well, I have a website, um, jimruin.net, and then I have a weekly newsletter uh, called Message from the Underworld, and I, I pretty much talk about whatever I'm working on at the time, whether it's uh, doing, um, whether it's a book. Right now, I'm writing about the book tour, like that's a, what I was doing when, when we jumped on the call, and um, or if I'm writing a book review, I'll like include stuff that didn't make it into the review or shows or just you know whatever you know um it's ma- it's mainly about music and, and books and all that kind of good stuff i was reading through your your blog uh getting ready for the interview jim and so i was wondering what are you listening to these days do you have any like recommends for us for the listeners we're always making recommends but wondering if you have some you can even recommend some hair metal for brant if you want <laughs> please do yeah um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm not really down with the mockery of the metal. Uh, <laughs> I, I've. Uh, Thank you. I mean, that, the thing is, like, it's been a fairly intense uh, couple of years in that uh, I had to listen to a lot of music, get up to speed on a lot of music. I had a lot of music as homework, mm. um, and then the most frustrating thing about um, working on a music book and doing a lot of interviews is that you can't listen to music while you're transcribing interviews, right? You know, you have to kind of listen to your own dumb voice over and over again. So, um, so I'm kind of like, I'm like, I'm, I'm picking through, uh, the best of 2021 lists, you know? And, um, so I'm like over the holidays, for example, I was finally catching up with, with turnstile and kind of grooving to that mm. um, and while I was in my COVID quarantine. Um, I'm living, listening to a lot of Australian bands. Uh, there's a band called civic that I like a yeah. lot yeah, that I'm cool. starting yeah. to groove on. And, uh, there's some, uh, noise stuff that I like. I really like, I'm wearing, I'm wearing the t-shirt now, but the, the, the spike anthology that water under the bridge put out. And oh yeah. It's a killer comp, hey? Yeah, it's a it's a really good one, and yeah. that turned me on to uh, to Slaughterhouse, and I've you know since had a chance to see them with uh, Bad Religion a couple times now, and man, like that surfy death rock sound is uh, that's right up my alley. Mm-hmm. That kind of mm-hmm. hits all the spots for me. Awesome, Jim. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome, and, and once again. Thank you guys for what you do. Um, it's no exaggeration. I could not have done the book without you guys. I was constantly listening to your podcast 
anytime I was in the car or anytime I was walking by myself. And just uh, it was just a tremendous resource for things I needed to read and things I needed to listen to and and people I needed to talk to. And um, uh, it's I can't say enough about how much I appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thanks, Jim. Really, really do appreciate you saying that. That means a lot to us. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Keep can't wait. Don't, can't don't wait give up. Read. You can't give up now. <laughs> do not give up. <laughs> don't give up. No way. I, no way we haven't gotten to mojack yet yeah, man exactly. and hey like you you are a big fan of the of the good for you stuff so i'm looking forward to getting to that yeah. too well i wouldn't say big fan but yeah i do like good for you <laughs> i like uh well you didn't shit on it like everyone else always yeah, does that, so that's true um i like good for you i like some of bias is pretty good um you didn't like, like horror though right like, I don't, I, it's, does anyone like horror? Well, some of so. well, it's. I mean, it's. We're not doing group thing here. It's all about like our individual taste. But yeah. that jam bang, uh, the DVD they put out, that is, that was very unexpected. That'll be mm. fun, to, fun thing to look forward to. And man, you've got like um, Oxbow to look forward to. Oh and yeah, you got some like really great stuff uh, um, coming. Yeah, I saw your resuming the interview here i saw you're doing a, a, a an appearance with eugene robinson that'll be cool yeah i'm i'm uh super excited and i believe oxbow has signed a deal with uh ipecac that's going to re-release all their their entire catalog wow which seems like the perfect place for, yeah yeah for what they do and now um you know maybe maybe soon the whole world will know the name oxbow yeah hopefully Right on, Jim. Thanks, man. Take care. You too. All right. You know, Jim has been a friend of the pod for a while, just exchanging, you know, intel and deets. And now we've got all the nugs in his book that we can work with going forward as well. And, you know, Jim has done a really good job at telling what I would say is, you know, one of SST's stories. One of the stories of SST, I think, is maybe what I want to say in the sense that there is a ton more out there about SST and Jim can't cover it all. We can't even cover it all on this show. And, you know, how many times have we interviewed people or reached out to people and they can't remember stuff or they we find out after that, that we got their info that they misremembered things, you know. So yeah. there there's more than enough room for Jim's book out there. It's a great read, though. And as I said, uh, there's so much great info on there, especially on the latter half mm-hmm. of the label that is just not out there anywhere else. And I yeah. love it. Yeah. How many times have I complained on this show about, you know, books about bands that 98% of the book is the first two years and then they just gloss over the the tail end, you know? Or, or documentaries too. Yeah. yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. This, and, book, and... this book doesn't do that for sure. I mean, of course, you know, they talk about, he talks a lot about Black Flag, for example. You can't tell the story of SST records without telling the story of Black Flag as well, right? Yeah. I thought it was really good in that it was like the Bad Religion book, like the Keith book, really balanced too. It, yeah. it, it doesn't pull any punches, but it's also not trying to drag people through the mud, you know, just just to sell books, Yeah, which, which I thought was really good and uh, super... Super. I've read it twice now. The book. 
Yeah. And just just to make sure that, you know, <laughs> I have it in my mind for future reference on the show, because, uh, you know, it's really easy to forget where stuff lies in the Mojack stacks. Yeah, it's an easy read, though. Like, I think it's over 400 pages long and uh, it's it didn't feel like a long book to me. No, no. Very, it's just uh, Jim's got a really good voice, just like in the Bad Religion and Keith books. It's super readable. I think I said that in the interview, too. Like, it's. It, it it doesn't uh, bog you down in a, a bunch of, you know, wording or unnecessary information. Yeah. It, it moves you along really good. Yeah, I think it was Ray Farrell who posted, you know, kudos to, to Jim also for doing it like in a narrative style. As a person who reads a lot of books about music, you know, the auto, uh, the, uh, what do they call them? Oh, like the oral histories? Oral history, yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. This this would not have, like Jim Jim really turned what could be an oral history, and it can be as yeah. well. Like someone should write a book about, you know, through oral history. Maybe that's what Abe Gibson is doing, you know. Yeah. But he turned something that could be like that into a really cohesive narrative. Yeah, it's no slight against oral histories. I buy a lot of them and I enjoy them, but it's nice to, to read one that's not that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was your favorite nug from the book? I don't even want to say because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's lots of good ones for me, man. We talked about the pictures too in the interview and they're just some amazing ones. Yeah, I've got some stuff on that here, but I wanted to say a few things. So uh, since we recorded this a few weeks ago, Jim's done some more appearances on his book tour, including the one we mentioned with Eugene Robinson of Oxbow. He talks about it in his blog, Message from the Underworld and mentions that Ipecac will be reissuing SST340, Oxbow's Serenade in Red. He alluded to that in the interview, but he seems to confirm that in his Message from the Underworld blog. I haven't actually been on Ipecac's website to confirm that. He maybe just got that directly from Eugene. I'm not sure if that's mm. if that's out there or, or not. I haven't seen it in the feeds that I follow where yeah. Ipecac is on there haven't seen, doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I thought Jim said it was the entire catalog, not just the one. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm just going off what he says in his, in his latest blog. Okay. Uh, there's a mention of Joseph Pope coming out to, to a reading and they had a chat. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also goes into more detail about his upcoming novel, the one he mentioned to us, which is being published by rare bird. Um, so that's cool. He's got a link up, the, uh, that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette posted, um, speaking of, of coolest nugs in the book, along with a short piece of of a live bootleg of Dave Turgeon of the Sluts singing for Black Flag. Hmm. Did we know about that, Ryan? I was When I was reading that, I was like, did we know about that when we <sighs> were way back on Damaged? I can't remember. We might have. We might not have. It's funny, like last week when I was studying up on the fat EP or the week before, whichever one that was, I was like, did I even know that there was a Cecilia? Oh yeah. We've talked about that for sure. Have we? Okay. So I don't, I don't know, man. Like my memory is definitely failing. failing Oh, I I know it's, it's bad, but I'm pretty sure we asked Bill about Cecilia. I could be wrong, but yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to spoil any of this stuff, but, um, yeah, the check, check the book out for sure. Uh, another piece he has up is that's really good timing on his blog, Jim, uh, because it dovetails into something he mentioned in the, the interview that I wanted to expand on. So Jim writes uh, in this blog piece, 
We are living in a golden age of the punk photography book. From obsessive examinations of single subjects like What I See, the Black Flag photographs of Glenn E. Friedman, on Akashic Books, and Christian Death, Only Theatre of Pain, photography by Edward Culver, on Cult Epics, to Slash photographer and co-founder Melanie Neeson's documentation of the early L.A. punk scene and Hard and Fast on Blank Records, we're seeing an explosion of books documenting the punk rock phenomena. Mm -hmm. Even bored teenagers of yore are getting into the act. Amateur photographer Kevin Salk's punk photos from a fan's perspective on Fathom yep. Books collects the photos he took as a teenager in Hermosa Beach, which happened to be Black Flag's backyard. That's from this blog piece by uh, Jim. So I've been thinking about this for a while now. Uh, for starters, you know, the photos in Jim's book are excellent. Yep. You know, the Spotnator, who's, of course, released, you know, some cool photo books like that we've talked about before, like The Sound of Two Eyes Opening. Uh, Edward Col Culver has stuff in there. Total legend. You know, typically amazing photos in Jim's book. We had Edward on for episode 175, the SST reissue of the Louie Louie single, which he shot the cover for. Uh, of course, you couldn't have an SST book without some Naomi Peterson photos, and there are some unbelievable ones in here, including uh, another one of my faves, Always August with Jordan Schwartz at SST. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I know her brother Christopher, who is, you know, taking great care to preserve her legacy, is working on something really special that is, I'm sure is going to blow all of, all of our minds. I say that like I have insider info i don't i just i just have a hunch that we're going to see some you know perhaps a photo book of of naomi's i hope yeah me too uh these wild don lewis photos of saint vitus black flag the pops are just so great uh linda arano has some great shots in here along with allison braun who seemingly photographed everyone her her archive is just insane I also recently, Ryan, got my copy of Glennie Friedman's Black Flag photo collection, What I See. Mm -hmm. It's really something. I like how he lays it out chronologically. It starts out in 1980 with the Ginn, Robo, uh, Dukowski, Des lineup with some, and then it goes into some very early fo photos of the Rollins lineup with Des on guitar, pre-damaged. There's photos of them rehearsing for damaged at Unicorn. I love when I'm, when I'm looking through these pictures. I love playing spot mugger. Oh yeah, on the side stage. <laughs> <laughs> I, and also when I'm looking at these photos, I'm trying to read set lists. Like I'm pretty sure I saw one from 1982 ha that has the song "In My Head" on it, which is just wild to me. Yeah. Totally love all the photos of the Gin Dukowski, Des Rollins, Chuck Biscuits lineup. Oh I, yeah. He, there's like two or three shows that he shot with them, and plus some. For sure, the most, I would say, uh, you know, promo type photos of that lineup. Yeah, there are, it's those ones where they're out like by the palm trees or the picnic yep. bench or something like that, right? Yep. I love studying uh, the Rollins tattoo progression. <laughs> like every show he's got new tattoos. Like he really racked them up fast. Yeah. Yeah. And the hair too of yep. the band. No Speedos. For Henry, just blue jeans and chinos in this era. Uh, every single photo, every member is just totally drenched in sweat and just like exploding off the page. 
the book ends in fall of 83 with Bill and Kira coming into the band. Uh, you know, there are classic photos for sure. Like, you know, the party in Mike Muir's garage that everyone has seen. Uh, but also many you've never seen before. Nice lengthy piece written by Glenn himself and a forward by Chuck Dukowski. And Chuck says something in there that I really like. He says, it is deceptively difficult to photograph the zeitgeist of a musical performance. So few of the iconic images of musicians are of them actually performing. Mm. Glenn brought his experience as a skateboarder come photographer to the action of punk rock and he made it fine art by showing the emotion in the music. Now Jim commented in the interview that so many of these photographers have been exploited and I totally agree with that. We've talked in previous episodes about, you know, their work not being valued or, or seen for what it is, which as, as Chuck says, is art. I will say for the record, you know, I curate our, our Instagram and I probably put as much work into that as I do into, you know, my prep for these episodes. To me, it's more than just a social media page or, or a way to promote the podcast. I, I really see it as our attempt to create a visual archive to go along with these episodes. And I do make every attempt to always credit the photographers uh, when we use photos, but it, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, a lot of these images I find by scouring the recesses of the internet, and it's rare that you'll find an image that is that's credited. Mm-hmm. You can totally overt, you, like overtly credited. Oh yeah, you can totally see why these photographers are so protective of their work. They've been burned so many times, right? So my idea for this week, what I wanted to do was feature a different photographer on our social media for each of the artists on the comp. So, and some of these artists, like you just can't find, like try and find photos of DC3, Sylvia Juncosa, and Swa. Like it's really hard. So I contacted several photographers, kind of explained my idea. Some responded immediately and were happy to participate. Some not so much. And I don't blame them, by the way. I'm in no, you know, I'm not offering compensation for their work. I'm hoping, you know, we can use our platform, for lack of a better term, to highlight some of them and send some traffic their way. Uh, So if you head over to our Instagram this week, you'll see some photos of some of the bands, but not all of them. Uh, Christopher Peterson sent me an amazing photo of SWA, easily one of the you know, most grossly under-documented bands on SST, in my opinion, which is really a shame. Uh, Chris is always super generous to us. Yeah. And, and like I say in the interview, when you see an email from him pop into your inbox, you know you're about to have your mind blown with some crazy photos. Uh, Allison Braun literally shot every band you can name. Her portfolio is just nuts. She has a photo book called In the Pit, 1981 to 1990. Uh, you can go on her website, alisonbraun.com, and buy prints for a very reasonable price. Wild Don Lewis shot the cover of the Stains record, Leaving Trains, Fuck, The No Age Comp, uh, DC3, You're Only As Blind As Your Mind Can Be. He sent sent me what looks like possibly an outtake from that photo shoot, and another DC3 kind of promo photo again, which, again, trust me, it is super difficult to find photos of DC3. Uh, Wild Don Lewis also photographed and wrote for the zine Ben is Dead from 1990 to 1993. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So much more. So go scroll around his website, wilddonlewis.com. You can easily kill an hour doing that. 
uh, one dude I specifically hit up for some Sylvia Giancosa photos. Another of them, you know, the criminally undocumented SST artists is Willem Colvert. Uh, he's worked at the famous Vera Club uh, in Sweden since 1987, shooting bands that play there, including Sylvia in 1990, designing and screen printing posters since 1989. He's still doing it today. In fact, he told me the first poster he ever did silkscreened was for Sylvia Giancosa. He works as an illustrator and artist. Uh, a few years back, he had a major exhibition at the Goringer Museum uh, of all of his work, accompanied by a book called Willem Colvert, 30 Years of Vera Posters. So dig this, Ryan. In 2015, he did a book and record called Where the Candy Beetle Dwells. He, so his concept was he made 11 drawings and asked 11 artists, including Kelvin Johnson, Fred Cole of Dead Moon, and Mark Lanigan, to write a song inspired by the drawings. So you can check that record out. Uh, he also has a Facebook page called Poster Art by Willem Colvert uh, that is just stacked with amazing posters, uh, often being held up by the artists themselves. So, uh, you know, we'll be tagging all of these artists on our Instagram posts this week. So if, if you're not already, you can also, you know, follow them on their Instagram. Right on. You want to go through these tracks, Ryan? Let's do it. History Lesson Part 2. So this came out in 1989 on CD, LP, and cassette. Mm -hmm. Although possibly later in 1999, in the 1988 catalog that we always use for... Um, uh, our spaceman spiels. Uh, the back page has 1989's first harvest, um, and this is not in there. So not in it. Yep. Yeah. I think maybe it came out later. Uh, so this, you know, SST did this a lot, where they would earmark these uh, catalog numbers and not necessarily go in chronological order. And as we go through this, Ryan, only one of these songs was our ballot result pick off of the oh, parent, no parent album so i'm gonna i'm gonna see if you can remember which one. Oh, no way but here's the thing uh i'm not surprised at all that this is if it's in 89 it's a late 89 because an earmarked you know for sending it out under this catalog number because look at the catalog numbers for the tracks that we haven't covered yet yeah Right. So that that totally makes sense. This was just kind of sitting out there end of the year. OK, put this one out under 213. Yep. OK, uh, track one, side one. Uh, well, we've got two Soundgarden songs, All Your Lies, written by Chris, Kim and Hero and Head Injury, a Chris song. Uh, the parent album is SST 201, Ultra Mega OK, where we had Kim Thale on as a guest. Here's an interesting tidbit, Ryan. Metallica recently started a singles club for their label Blackened. Uh, and these are super limited releases, so they're already fetching big bucks on Discogs. So they played this Chris Cornell tribute at the LA Forum in 2019 yep. and released a two-song seven-inch from, from their set. The A-side is All Your Lies and the B-side is Head Injury. No way. Yeah. I bet you... The boys in Metallica had this comp. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And I'll just read Lars's inscription from the 7-inch sleeve. 
uh, since we're, you know, we're talking about Chris here. It says, thank you, Chris. Thank you for your music. Thank you for the words, for your thoughts. Thank you for the shows. Thank you for the good times, for putting yourself out there. And thank you, along with your fellow bandmates, for giving us something that inspired us, excited us, meant something, moved us, and not only gave us belief in the possibilities, but turned us the fuck on. What an honor to have known you, to have shared the stage with you, and created next-level memories, and ultimately, to have been included in the L.A. celebration of your life, which allowed us the opportunity to share with the world just how much of your music and your brilliance meant to us. Mm. Here are two of our favorite old-school Soundgarden tracks from that special night. Nice. No, You know, no matter what you think of Metallica, they always have chosen good covers. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think anything negatively of Metallica. It's like not my jam, and a lot of people really, you know, disliked Lars for his take on the music sharing. Um, but I think, and some people, what it, what's that? There's that album where people don't like the snare sound. Like, there's all that kind of crap out there. Yeah. But I, I don't think you can say anything about Metallica's street cred, their musicianship, their longevity. Yeah. You know, and they know, they know this stuff. Yeah. They oh, know, yeah. they know SST, they know the South Bay scene, right? They've done a lot too, to help, you know, like same kind of thing Nirvana did, right? To use their, their platform to, to, uh, help out other bands. Yeah. You know, Metallica's done that a lot. I will, I, and you know, every now and then, as much as I, I kind of take the piss out of metal every now and then. I'll hear a song from those first three records and I'll, I'll get into it. Oh, do you think for one minute that Danzig and the Misfits would be as well known as they are were it not for Metallica? No way. Yeah. Or Diamond Head or any of those kinds of bands. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, track three and four are St. Vitus songs. The Creeps written by Dave Chandler and Bitter Truth written by Wino. SST 161, Mournful Cries, is the parent album. Not sure, uh, you know, as I listen to this, I'm not sure if I noticed the shaker on the creeps the first time around. I feel like I didn't, maybe. Yeah, I had a similar revelation when listening to this comp as I have when listening to other comps, which is when you pull these songs out of the context of their album, yeah. you definitely notice different things. Yeah. Uh, like for Bitter Truth... I'm not sure that I noticed just the fret melting solo in Bitter Truth. Like I, you know, when I listened to it in the context of the album, it really stood out in the context of this comp for me. Well, I think that might be Wino. So there was two tracks on Mournful Cries that Wino played guitar on. Mm. And, I th and I think maybe it was lead because, you know, Dave Chandler's leads are often super noisy. Mm. You know, this okay. one's more like a classic rock style solo. Uh, I checked and we'll get another crack at Bitter Truth. It's on uh, SST 266, the heavier than thou comp. So there's that. The uh, I don't expect you to remember this, Ryan, but do you think one of these was our ballot result pick? Do I think one of these was our ballot result pick? Yeah, for Mournful Cries. Yes, I think I do. No, no. <laughs> we picked the song The Troll, which I think is probably too long to put on this comp. It's a It's a real long song. Yeah, I know that All Your Lies and Head Injury were not our pick No, for, for Ultra Mega OK. Yeah, I know it, that. It was beyond the wheel. Exactly. Okay, the next two tracks are by Sylvia Jencoza. 
Uh, we've got Lick My Pussy, Eddie Van Halen, and Tower of Ashes. Now, I probably said this on episode 146, the, uh, the Nature album that these come off of, where we had Sylvia on as a guest, by the way. Uh, I don't love the track, Lick My Pussy, Eddie Van Halen. There are for sure better tracks on that record. I'm not, mm-hmm. just not a big fan of the guitar synth sounds on that one. Uh, it's always listed in like the Spaceman spiels and you know the promo. The song title is kind of better than the song. Yeah, I I I can't help but think it's it's thrown in there and, and onto this comp because of the provocative title. Mm-hmm. Tower of Ashes, however, is a Stone Cold classic, Ryan, and our ballot result pick ah. for the Nature album. And a reminder that there's an excellent video for that that you can can watch on YouTube. Bonus points for the totally killer bass playing from paper bag crew dude, Tom Shannon. Yeah. Check out our, our interview with Greg Siegel to hear about Tom Shannon. He was a, he was a buddy. Okay. The next two are descendants tracks that we just heard recently, actually on episode 205, 205. Thank you. Uh, we've got hurt and crew written by Milo, Bill, Ray Cooper, and Doug Carrion. And we've got Iceman, written by Milo and Stefan. Here's what I wrote about this one, Ryan. Maybe it was having Iceman out of the context of the album, but I was just rocking so hard this week to to that song. Yeah, tracks on a comp will do that. I'm I'm with you on that. Like, Hurt and Crew, I was like, whoa, Bill's drums are insane. And then Iceman, for me, I was like, I'd, I'm not sure I realized how jazzy Iceman is. Yeah. I've always loved Hurt and Crew, but Iceman was was really doing it for me this week. But off that album, we picked the song Cheer, by the way. Mm. Okay, and then if you're listening on LP, flipping it over, we've got Bad Brains, The Regulator, the Regulator and Coptic Times slash FVK, which is Fearless Vampire Killers. Weird picks for me from episode 160, The Live album where we had Daryl Jennifer on as a guest. Don't get me wrong, I love these songs, especially Coptic Times. There's just others I maybe would have picked, like Reignition or At the Movies, or our ballot result pick for that episode, which was the song I. Uh, but if my hunch is right about this comp kind of being all about heaviness, then these yep. tracks make sense for sure. Three of the fastest and heaviest on on the live album. Agreed. I, that was my sense too. You know, when you get to the the second half and it's FVK, you're just like, okay, this is insane. This That's why this is on this record. Yeah. Now the next tr- four tracks are off of releases we haven't gotten to yet. Like I mentioned uh, in that massive 1988 catalog uh, that we're always digging the Spaceman spiels out of, Blast's Take the Manic Ride, SST-225, which definitely came out in 1989, is listed in the main part of the catalog. And Swaz Winter, which is SST 238, uh, that's listed under the section titled 1989's First Harvest. This comp doesn't appear anywhere in the catalog. Uh, so we'll be getting to both of these albums this year. Uh, so I, I didn't go too deep into the, you know, a history lesson on the parent album or on the tracks, really. We'll we'll save that for when we get to the to these albums. But we've got two Swaz songs next off of the album Winter. Uh, Headphones is one song written by Chuck and Merrill and Goddess, also Chuck and Merrill. A bit of a change in the lineup for Swa 
on this record. Sylvia is out of the band on guitar, and Philo Van Dyne is in. Uh, Headphones is an interesting track. It sounds like Kiss or something like that. Yeah, I had written down, this is like just a classic rock song. Yeah. The the lyrics are perhaps unintentionally hilarious. (laughs) Like, I met a girl down at the record store. I, I think he says, I bought myself a new CD, which is odd that you'd be referencing a CD. Mm-hmm. Said I'd show her what this thing was for if she promised to come home with me. <laughs> uh, the other track, though, Goddess is a real stormer. Uh, Philo's guitar tone just rules. Like when it kicks into the chorus with those just super heavy riffs. Just love it. A typically weird but cool swah track. Yeah, I do love the bass intro. Like, yeah. if you're if you're a bass player and you hear that bass intro and you're not really initiated to Chuck Dukowski, I could see someone saying, well, that just sounds like hackish. Yeah. I could see someone saying that, right? Yeah. But when you know the way that Chuck, you know, holds his right hand and plays and the way that he writes, you're just like, yes. Oh, that yeah. Is, that is the ultimate. It's the Duke. It's not as precise as if, if you're thinking like uh, Kira on Slip It In. You know, yeah. for example, the way it's just ultra precise. Yeah, but I'm t- I'm I mentioned Chuck's right hand on purpose. If you look at like the way he holds it and the way he hits the strings, it is the pinnacle of the Duke on that intro, and it's awesome. Oh yeah, you can see it in every single photo in that <laughs> book, man. You know, <laughs> yeah, Glennie Friedman's book, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know, I know. Okay, yeah, I mean, he almost like pins the bass up against him like up against his thighs almost because he's always you know he's squatting kind of he wears his bass super low almost plays it like a lap steel or something against his thighs and he's just hammering on it with his fingers yeah okay uh oh hey and even greg cameron takes a solo in this song Mm. goddess super uh super cool little drum solo and then we've got two more songs we haven't heard yet from Blast, we've got uh, Overdrive and Out of Alignment, both written by Clifford Dinsmore and Mike Nider. Uh, both of these songs are total rippers, especially Out of Alignment for me, which kind of almost, I, I would say, acts as the title track of the parent album, Take the Manic Ride, I suppose, because they do say that in the, the song. Right. As I was listening to these, I was thinking about Pat Howitt trying to break these guys, you know, into the metal specialty programming. Uh, and I feel like this totally would have fit with some of the stuff that was coming out around this time, like DRI or Excel and the guitar so, tone. Yeah. The guitar tone on this record, when you compare it against the previous ones, I can totally see why. Yeah. Uh, I just can't wait to get to the record. Great photos on the insert of that album, by the way, from Alison Braun. Yeah. That is the first Blast album I ever bought on CD, compact nice. disc. Nice. You come back to my place, I'll show you what that CD is for, Brent. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then we end the album with some DC3, Thirsty and Miserable and Angel of Death. Uh, Thirsty and Miserable is, of course, a Black Flag cover written by Dez, Medea Jones, and Robo. Angel of Death written by Dave Brock. It's a Hawkwind cover. Uh, SST 156 is the live album Vita, Vita, where we were fortunate enough to have Dez on as a guest for the second time. Neither of these was our ballot result pick. I believe it was our pick for that one. 
uh, Daz sends Thirsty and Miserable out to Dave Chandler on the yeah. live recording, a reference probably to the, the Vitus cover. Uh, Angel of Death is a, you know, like I said, is a Hawkwind cover. I just love it, especially for Paul Rossler's space synths effects that he's just going off with. Yeah, his keyboard solos on both. Yeah. Pretty wild. Both of these ones were recorded live at Raji's December 87. That's it. That's the comp. Yeah, it's a good comp. I mean, it does what I think it was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. It intros you to these bands for some representative yet heavy leaning, like very heavy leaning songs. Listening to it on the show or for the show, you know, it made me just totally get into the groove for the familiar classics whetted my appetite for the upcoming ones so i'm i was into it yeah the artwork ryan is pretty simple just like the first one it, it pretty much exactly copy, copies the first one it's just got the the bands on the front there's a spiel on the back which i'm pretty sure is exactly the same as the spiel on the first one from the programmer yeah there's an insert with kind of the you know a collage i guess of most of you know these albums and a few others by by the same bands yeah all with that well not all most with that black border around it just to show that this was you know i don't know perhaps not a photo and maybe yeah. made in <laughs> made out of photos or something and i don't yeah. know yeah ballot result yeah man ballot result my favorites this week were ryan were all your lies mm -hmm. head injury bitter truth Hurt and Crew, Iceman, and Goddess. Oh, and Out of Alignment also. Okay, so you're actually picking tracks off of forthcoming LPs as well. Yeah. Oh. Why not? I don't know. I don't know. The bylaws permit it. Yeah. I don't know. You pick. You pick. I think that uh, you probably have got some good ones there. I could go with any of them, I suppose. I, I will say, you know, the SWA track, goddess i love the bass intro but i'd rather just spiel about that again when we get to it so i don't know you pick let's do all your lies why not okay yeah good tribute from lars yeah to chris so let's do it all right hey ryan thanks to jim rulin not just for being on our show but for always being so cool to us like he sent us like advanced copies of the book yeah. you know to read before it was out then he sent us each a book uh, you know, he always mentions us in interviews and in his blog. Uh, and it, you know, it was a total thrill for us to be included in, in this book. So if you haven't picked it up yet, what are you waiting for? Yeah. A real honor. Thank yeah. you, Jim. Yeah. Woo. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going back to a familiar fave. It's SST 214, the Minutemen Joy EP. Yeah. And I'll say this, Ryan, we got an excellent response to our interview with Pat Howard. People really loved hearing from Pat. And if you liked that one, tune in next week because we've got Ron Coleman on the show. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.